people. Well, yeah, I think it's a natural progression in as much that I, I needed somebody to work with to relate to if I was going to discover for myself how I was going to write in the future. I needed some help. Um, I couldn't do it myself because I couldn't look at myself properly in it at the time. And I think I was very fortunate in deciding on such um, uh, an empathetic git as Zeno to work with, who is an absolutely wonderful man, terrific. And in fact, the funniest thing really is that we spent, I think, for every hour that we recorded in the studio. He has an incredible sense of humour. I don't know whether you know Eno at all. Um, Fripp and Eno and I think spent about 40 minutes of every 60 laughing. I mean, it's just incredibly surrealistic humour that Brian can come up with. And indeed Fripp. Fripp has that, you know, much more don't-do-earth type humour. <laughs> what is the difference between pop and rock and roll? You might get fucked. This is part two of a two-part finale. This is part two of a two-part finale. So, before we get into our top ten uh, songs... Uh, just a couple of uh, reflections about the podcast itself and uh, also just some things we learned from the podcast. So let's we'll, we're not going to go uh, 20 questions Charlie Rose here because he's canceled. But um, <laughs> let's start with an easy one. Who is the uh, person in the whole Bowie catalog, not David Bowie, that surprised you by how much he, they contributed more than you knew? Make sense? Uh, most most yeah. improved player. I mean, I wouldn't say most improved, but I always, um, in my mind, kind of from far back, uh, I know that you'll probably argue with me on this point, but I really feel that Carlos Alomar um, was such an incredible contributor to Bowie's entire career. Did um, you say I might I might argue with you? Well, on that? the reason I say that is because you know when you introduced me to David Bowie, you know back in the day. You know, in my mind, I was always thinking it was Bowie and Mick Ronson, right? And then anyone who would get into Mick Ronson's shoes was just going to be someone that uh, was like a pretender, right? I actually, but I agree with you. Um, yeah. I always knew Carlos Alomar's name, and I knew he was on a lot of the albums. But in my mind, I I, I hate to say this, I, I always just thought of him as like another Earl Slick or another rhythm guitarist. And I had no idea. There you go. Okay, cool. Until I, I did not page. know. Okay. Yeah, he's basically like Ringo to a you know uh, John Lennon here. That's that's about how much he was contributing right. when you. So I actually uh, I agree with you. That was going to be mine. There's only one other answer here. I'm really that I think Eric might have, but Carlos Alomar. I always knew he was important. I didn't know he was that important. Yeah, he. I mean. His guitar playing is fantastic. He can go in and out of different styles. Um, he was kind of also uh, showing Bowie uh, the way. And sometimes, whenever they, it seemed that they would get into this area where 
Uh, Bowie wanted to do something creatively, but he just was painting himself in a corner. And I feel that Carlos Alomar was the guy that was just like, I think I know what you're talking about. Let's try it this way. And, um, and it just, it came to life and, uh, he, he's my guy, man. Like, I think that he, he's been a phenomenal contributor and he seems like just an all around good guy too. Um, I know that there has been probably some acrimony throughout the years between like how much he was going to get paid and whatnot. Um, but it always seemed that Bowie really appreciated his contributions. And it's, it's unfortunate that he didn't come back for kind of the later years. Like it would be great to see him on black star as just kind of, as he's going out the door, you know, he also brings that person that he was kind of his right-hand man through all those years, um, all those classic albums that everyone talks about, you know, post Ziggy, of course. And, you know, Carlos is really responsible for a lot of that sound. Yeah, I don't know if he would have fit on Black Star, but it would have been interesting to hear what he would have contributed. Instead of some random B-side on reality or whatever it was, but yeah. It was, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, Carlos Alomar, that's my answer too, for all the reasons you said. And also, I do think it's very important that when you look at David Bowie, I brought this up before, multi-ethnic, wasn't just a bunch of uh, Caucasians for decades on end. And um, I'm sorry I had to bring that up, but I do feel you need to think about that when you think about the diversity of his catalog and the songs. And also, back then, things were even more uh, homogenized than they are now. So... And also, I mean, in, in that same uh, speaking point, uh, you know, in rock, you don't really get uh, much in the way of um, African-American drummers. And holy shit, did Dennis Davis uh, just fucking blow the skins off of pretty much anything that he was on. Lodger, like the work on um, uh, Stay, uh, Look Back in Anger is just outrageous. Uh, outrageous. You want to get back to you want to get back to scary monsters. His drums on scary monsters are produced so well. They feel like they're inside your head. Oh my God. They're, yeah. They're awesome. Yeah. Um, Eric, who's yours? I, I want to guess it, but I want you to say it first. As far as most improved ones that kind of took me off guard, I kind of have my, my hired gun that, that I, uh, that I, I always appreciate. But as far as who took me off guard, you know, it's Mike Garson for me. Yeah. I, uh, that's what I, that's what I thought you were going to say. Yeah. yeah. And I, and honestly, like I recognized his work on the fragile and I remember you guys saying, oh yeah, he did some work with Bowie. And then when, as his name started popping up, I made sure to pay attention to it. And he would do his crazy avant-garde cats on a keyboard, which I do, you know, in the right context can be very good, but he's played on songs. He didn't, you know, you wouldn't necessarily know he's playing. He's just doing a very strong, like backing piano part. Um, but then when, when Bowie would get really into the avant-garde uh, or like the art jazzy stuff later, um, or like even the drum and bass, that a good Mike Garson riff in the background would suddenly ground that piece to, um, to you know, give it a little bit more weight and a little bit more uh, a substance to it. And um, just very versatile, but definitely has his own style um, when you let him, when you let the leash off. And uh, yeah, Mike Garson is, uh, he's just weaved in and out of that whole career. And uh, big fan. Yeah, I, 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 the, the, the 90s stuff we recently talked about, we like to make the joke that Cat's in the keyboard because that is part of his sound, but we were selling him short. And when you listen to all the 90s stuff back to back to back to back, you do realize, oh, my goodness, this guy's really, he's doing his best to make these songs work. Yeah. And um, then on the classic stuff he's on, like Young Americans and 
uh, even Di uh, Diamond Dogs. Diamond Dogs, yeah, he was a big part of Diamond Aladdin Dogs and Aladdin Sane. Yeah, 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 he's really he's doing a great job, and I, uh, it's, yeah, fun fun stuff, good stuff. What's the next? Uh... Well, yes, okay. So the next question would be, what album? I don't want to get too negative, but what album kind of caught you off guard by you didn't like it as much as you thought? We can we can move quickly through here, but I am curious. So I uh, actually have one ready to go on that. Um, the one I was expecting, not just me, but all of us to be kind of over the moon about. Um, and it's because it's one of my wife's favorites. It's always in the background on our, at our house. It's fun technically, but I've never really given it a deep listen. And that was Let's Dance. Um, and it's not a bad record. It's probably one of his better mid eighties things, but, and it was very successful. But there's only three or four songs with any substance on that whole album. And uh, while technically it is very fun all the way through, it doesn't have the weight that his good stuff really has. So uh, doing a deep listen definitely did that album a, a disservice. It's really meant to be in the background, kind of tapping your, your feet while you're cleaning the house. Interesting. I kind of agree with you. But for me, I think I actually like that album a little better than I expected. Uh, Mark, what is your answer? So, you know, it, I, I probably have to agree a little bit with Eric um, with all the points that he said. I thought that, like, I would be a little bit more into it. But surprisingly, and I know that uh, Steve's going to get his knives out now, uh, but for me, it would be Aladdin Sane. Um, you know, I, I expected something to hold the, as much of an iconic status as Ziggy. And it, for me, uh, upon reviewing it and listening to it. I mean, there is absolutely some gems on there. Don't get me wrong, but it just feels like a loose collection of B sides and, um, it being so right next to Ziggy. Uh, it, for me, it, I'm not going to say it's overrated, but for me, I was expecting it to be at least in my top, uh, my top, my top 12 maybe, but it, it just was kind of right there in the middle. Um, uh, yeah, that's just one that I just never really reach for. And it's, it's, it, I don't know what else to say about that. I still scored the three out of five looking back. Um, but I expected to score that one at least higher than let's say diamond dogs. Um, well, that's what happens when the cover yeah. is more iconic than any of the songs within. That's, that's true. That, 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 that album cover outshadows the album. I don't blame you, Mark. I like that album, but it's, uh, it's not, it's not a home run. Um, it was lucky to come out after Ziggy Stardust, I think. Yeah. So to be, uh, my answer is uh, reality. I thought I like reality almost as much as Heathen. I do not. <laughs> uh, moving on. Uh, let's be, let's be more positive. What album surprised you by how much more you liked it than you expected? I mean, that's pretty easy for me. Uh, that's Lodger. Um, I always expected it to be. Um, you know, Bowie's just let's get out of the Berlin trilogy as quick as we can and onto the next thing. Um, but holy smokes, that's in my top five. And it, I always thought that would be somewhere in like the late teens. Um, but I was very impressed with all of the dynamics because I always, you know, I think Steve, you talked about this when we talked about our albums. Like I just attribute it to that one crazy song that one of these days, one of these days, and um, there's way more to it. It's it's a fun record to listen to. Um, the song "Look Back in Anger," and of course the song "DJ." Um, Boys keep swinging is a fun song. 
but yeah, I would say Lodger. That was my most improved. It's it's up there for me and on that list. And yeah, one of these days would I always imagine the rest of that album sounded like I was wrong. It's uh, I've always liked it, but not as much as I do. I fucking it, it's my top low. Uh, is it is it under heroes? I can't remember. We just did that list. Who cares? But uh, no, Lodger really climbed for me, though. I got to pick one of those more lesser uh, loved albums because I actually enjoyed going through those quite a bit upon reflection. I really, 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 really uh, liked fucking black tie white noise way more than I thought. Um, oh God. Yeah. Like I, might, I don't even remember what I scored it, but I do go back to some of those songs quite a bit since we started the podcast. Those plastic sounding oh. 90s songs. Dude, Miracle Goodnight, I, man. Uh, that yes. video is fantastic. I, I, yeah, Miracle Goodnight's fun. I actually like that ridiculous, you know, Palace <laughs> Athena. Um, Miracle Goodnight nonsense some, of, somehow made it on all of our like, huh, I think I'll keep this in my playlist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the title track is absolute stupidity, but you know it's uh, reaching uh, out, out its grasp. But no, I actually like black. Out of the uh, albums that are frowned upon, Black Tie White Noise is one that actually made it into the rotation. You're not gonna find Never Let Me Down there. Um, I do you know, like the song Time I, Will Crawl quite a bit, though. Um, but yeah, yeah, that one was fun. Yeah. And if I really, you know, tonight I could almost say tonight. I could easily say either one. Uh, both the tonight and black tie white noise both surprised me by how much I enjoyed them knowing that neither of them is really a good album. Uh, Eric, what's your answer? Uh, that's actually a, a good choice. Mine is, is, uh, not because it's supposed to be a bad album, but the early stuff into the early seventies, um, you know, just based on what I like about Bowie, I, I, I there's a lot of really good stuff in there. Um, but I, I kind of always painted it with a kind of a more generic spacey folk, spacey rock kind of kind of thing that wasn't quite into that experimental phase what I really liked about Bowie. So when I heard Man Who Sold the World, the whole album, I was pretty floored. Um, it got up there. It's in my top 15. Um, it, just because it is that a little bit, but it's really darker and really heavier than um, I, re- I expected it to be. And, uh, you know, and, and, he, and there's a couple clunkers on there, but... He goes to some pretty crazy places in those lyrics, um, and <laughs> uh, and of course it's like we were like we were saying before, uh, when you let that band loose to do what they want. Apparently, that particular year, it was some uh, very heavy rock, and uh, I enjoy it. Yeah, that album was a fun discussion. Favorite album we discussed that's or favorite favorite anything that we discussed that's not one of his re- proper albums. Favorite tangential work, album he produced for someone else movie blah 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 um i would probably say uh my favorite thing that he touched upon it's kind of a one-two punch for me um even though looking back i was a little more harsh about uh the idiot but i have learned to just appreciate it it aged like a fine wine it's not something that can sink in after just a handful of listens for me at least and my god uh, the idiot uh, followed up with uh, lust for life those two um, just his collaboration with Iggy Pop made me appreciate Iggy Pop by leaps and bounds uh, on this podcast I always thought he was just kind of a goofball um, that uh, you know was known for being in the Stooges he of course had a relationship not like a sexual one but a you know a partner collaboration with David Bowie that I always just didn't really pay much attention to but i would say just that one two punch of the idiot and lust for life 
Yeah, sometimes the obvious answer is the correct one. I agree with you. I I almost had I had to stop myself from putting uh, any Iggy Pop stuff in my top ten lists. I easily could have, but I, there's so much good Bowie stuff I had to curb myself. But uh, yeah, I was surprised by like we just talked about on our last episode or the one before last, the Iggy Stardust, the Ziggy, the Iggy Pop one. I was surprised by how much of an Iggy Pop fan the, this podcast turned me into. What a pleasant surprise. And that's part of the fun of doing a deep dive into something that is 40 years worth of music. Of course, your eyes are going to be open to things that you never really gave the time of day before. And a lot of our friends, a lot of our listeners, they're probably old-timey Iggy Pop fans. But uh, guess what? You can't like everything uh, all your life, all the time. So sometimes you got to be a late bloomer. And uh, yeah, I'm glad that I, 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 I embraced Iggy as much as I think he deserves to be embraced. Eric, uh, what do you think? Of course, I just assume I can't really explain it any other way. You guys must have just forgotten the vibrating shimmer that Bowie's thumbprint left on the film Cool World. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, His portrayal as Nikolai Tesla. Just, yeah, that's the one. Well, hey, that 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 wouldn't be a bad choice. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, you guys are right. The idiot. I mean, his Iggy collaborations just completely expanded my mind and uh, and my tastes, my 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 my, my palette of, of of things I enjoy. Uh, specifically, that that album, The Idiot, though. So much about that has informed so much of the music I like. Um, it became an all timer for me. So well done. Awesome. All right, last question. Not David Bowie related. We've done two seasons of podcasts. What would you do differently? Period. That's an open-ended question. It could, anything can be an answer. Eric? Um, I, I wouldn't drink whiskey while recording on a few choice, choice uh, recording nights where I had to text you guys the next day and say, uh, what the fuck happened last night? Was I, was I okay on that episode? And sometimes the answer is no, and we have to record half an episode. Uh, perfect. Yes, folks, that was the fragile. That's why, the, in case you, we didn't already tell you about that, we might have already let you know that secret. Yeah. Yes, professionalism, professional. Multiple recording sessions upon multiple locations. I mean, back in if that was during COVID times, we never would have pulled it off. That uh, we were traveling all over California to get that thing done. Well, shit. But, I mean, early in my editing days, remember I deleted the second half of the downward spiral episode, so we had to fucking re-record that shit too. Oh yeah. Oh, oh yeah. man, that was a fun one. But I get—I mean, I guess sound quality. Like if we—we—we we, we ended up doing some, some, some tweaking on our sound quality as it went on. It got much better. I would—it would have been nice to have started strong with that. But that's—that's um, yeah. that's just that's just experience there for you. That's Mark, true. do you have anything that jumps to your mind? I mean, yes, I'm sure there are some listeners out there that don't like our meandering, looking at you, Debbie from Detroit or whatever. <laughs> Um, but uh, I, I think it's part of our charm shit. Like, that's it's our chemistry coming alive. And just knowing us, we haven't really spent a whole lot of time together. So this is also like listening in on one of our phone calls. But at the same time, um, I would say that uh, if there's anything that we would do differently, um, I would be included in the skits. Oh, that's it. Oh, I think I think we all... Oh. Oh no! I think we all share a little of the blame for that, you know. Mark, yeah, this this is reflecting upon real life when we could hang out. Maybe Mark can make himself more available more and let us know he wanted to hang out. 
Maybe Eric and I could reach out more and let him know that we were going down the American River to get our balls wet. I, I, but, uh, I, I remember one out of the three of us was very against the idea of skits. But once he f- discovered the magic, we should have reached back out, Steve. I, I think that's fair. That's fine. All right, well, well, maybe, maybe, maybe we can make a miracle happen before things are all done. Um, <laughs> I would just say I, I cannot do another podcast just like this. There will never be another pod like a whole season where we take one artist that has a catalog this big and go through all of them. You fly so close to the sun of turning your favorite artists into homework. And uh, thankfully, David Bowie did not become homework for me, but you could easily make an artist become homework for yourself. If you pick someone whose catalog doesn't have as a diverse genres as his. I mean, imagine if you're a... Uh, Swans, the Swans. You guys are listening to the Swans. They're just really slow and loud, sure. and they probably have forty-two albums. If you made a podcast out of the Swans, you'd hate them by the fifth episode. Uh, that's uh, the danger that you run when you try to pull off these things. You either need an artist that has a shorter catalog, or an artist that has a total diverse catalog. But even with the diversity of David Bowie's catalog, towards the end there, I was like, let's just get this done. Yeah, there's a. There's a pandemic out there. Uh, I got to become a kindergartner teacher in addition to my other stuff soon. Um, you know, my feet look weird from being home all the time. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So that'd be my one thing is that while we absolutely had to do David Bowie, if we were to do a third season, we would think long and hard about the artists that we choose. It's true. It's true. And boy, did we ever. Um, but we'll get to that a little bit later. Uh, did you have any other questions that we uh, that you wanted to answer there, counselor? No, that's that's it. All right. I believe it's time for the, the what everyone's been waiting the entire season for the top 10 songs. The, the, the album rankings are fun, but you can't get into the really what cuts your soul like you can when you do a, a song list. So the top 10 songs. Are you guys ready? I'm ready. All right. Round Robin style. We all know the rules by now. Number 10 is kind of a new one. Uh, It is uh, the title track from the final album, Black Star. The song, Black Star. Go on. That's that's not on mine, but yes, good pick. Actually, Eric, you're going to have to hold off. Ha! All right! right. That that actually makes me, uh, actually warms me heart. My number 10. Okay, Modern Love. It's It's it number 10 because it didn't change the world. But it's a song that I've loved for the majority of my life. Even though Let's Dance is not one of my favorite David Bowie albums, I've always really appreciated the ultra-pop sensibilities of this track. It always makes me happy. There's not much to say about it besides it's just a really good pop song. Uh, it's got some good saxophone. It's got some some fun... Church on Times? Yes, Church on Times. It really, you know, it's like the best part of the 80s come to life, I think. Modern Love it finds itself... You can find itself on a hipsters mixtape or a uh, I Love the 80s mixtape, and both of them will will love it uh, unironically, I think. It's a, a great track, and that's my number 10. 
I'm a big fan of how that song uh, essentially starts out with uh, David Bowie kind of doing a little spoken word thing. Um, but yeah, the uh, church on time and uh, just call and response to the gospel singers. Um, you got to love it. It's a toe tapper. I love that song. Yeah, if the, if that whole album, Let's Dance, was was as, as quality as Modern Love or even the title track, I might have a completely different opinion of it. I think, I think Modern Love definitely was his tip top as far as writing a song with substance, but also making it accessible as hell and, and right in the right in the uh, zeitgeist. He tried to recapture some of that magic I feel on Blue Jean, but uh, didn't come close. Good pick. So my number 10, uh, this could be on one of yours. We're going to say that pretty much all throughout this conversation. Uh, but this is a song by David Bowie where the words uttered by Kurt Cobain. And that's how I first heard the song, The Man Who Sold the World. May I continue? You may. All right. You may continue. So um, it starts out with that iconic uh, just... I mean, like, my God, uh, I'm sure everyone, including my uh, crazy-ass father, knows the, the riff for that. It uh, has a little tropical flair to it. Like I had mentioned, we have the woodblock, the maracas, and the gyro. Um, it's just a great song, and lyrically, it's... Uh, it just hits you. Um, you know, I never lost control in your face to face the man who sold the world because, you know, sometimes you feel like you're selling yourself out. And um, yeah, it's just a classic David Bowie song. I don't know what else to say about it. I thought you died alone, a long, long time ago. part that strikes out uh, at me, uh, besides the fact that it uh, informed a Metal Gear Solid game, is the, uh, the I've mentioned this in the episode, Kurt Cobain plays it as a guitar solo, but David Bowie's vocalization that closes out the song is uh, triumphant, uh, otherworldly. Um, really is. It's, Wales. It's, it's amazing. And yeah, the, the, the subtle Islander uh, musical touches are awesome. You don't notice them the first time you might hear it, but they really do give the song a flavor of a uh, time travel or different portals to two other places. Um, much like that album we discussed, like that album feels like your Bruce uh, in army of darkness going into the cave at the end <laughs> um, or, uh, or evil dead Two going to the cave at the end and coming out into another world. That's some kind of odd alchemy between science and, and wizardry. And I think uh, what man sold the world, the title track off that album, Sums it up perfectly. Yeah. I can't. I can't add much because you said it all. But um, I do like following the trajectory of this song. You know, once once Nirvana covered it on Unplugged, Bowie was touring. You know, a few short li- years later for Outside and, and Earthling, and he tried to reclaim the song as his own by doing something completely different with it. And like you know, Reeves playing a sitar George Harrison style with some drum and bass in the background. Not, you know, definitely straying maybe in the wrong way from what the song's supposed to sound like. And then like in Glastonbury coming back and doing it the way it's supposed to be done. Um, and you know, it just, it's just fun to, to follow the Bowie's relationship with that song. I'll be a damn monkey's uncle. If, uh, somebody else doesn't have this on their list, but, uh, my number nine is look back in anger. Yeah. We're going to talk about that one later. Moving on to my number nine. This was a recent addition to my top 10, but I've always liked it. 
the secret life of Arabia. Did it did it happen to climb into your top tens? That's a good song. It was uh, definitely in the first round, but no, go ahead. It was very close for me, but nope. Go. I just think it's amazing. Uh, the song does so much in less than five minutes. It's danceable. It's placed after you go through this crazy world of heroes uh, instrumentals. And getting back to Carlos Alomar, it's a Carlos Alomar tour de force. Whenever the songs uh, had a groove to them, you can't deny like this or stay. It's the Carlos Alomar uh, feather in the cap. And I love the lyrics that gets back to David Bowie kind of talking about being in movies or the relationship between people in movies, seeing themselves in a movie. It has a, 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 an essence of world travel to it that is further explored on Lodger. And I think it definitely is the, the, the prequel to Lodger. It's just really catchy. It's got great backup vocals. I've always been a fan of it, but uh, there might be some Regency bias there. But hey, man. You know, when you listen to a guy's entire catalog in a year, you're going to have your opinions change on what your favorites are. And uh, it, it climbed into the top 10 for me. The Secret Life of Arabia. It's a good pick. Um, I mean, yeah, I, that that song is a hell of a way to end uh, the album. It uh, really does just make you want to just shake your little booty. Um, it's it's a good one. I, I, I can't really say anything else than that. It's just... It's a strong song that anytime that it comes on, you're like, where the fuck did this come from? Yeah. You know, and you just kind of got to move with it as Buck Swope would say. I'll just add, if you're doing, if you do yourself a favor and just sit down one day and commit one night and commit to doing a Berlin trilogy, listen all the way through after the heaviness of low and heroes perfectly rests in that world. But then it ends with this song. Oh boy. It's like you're, it's like you, you, you just, uh, you've got uh, cement shoes on and you just broke free and, and swam to the surface and got a big breath of fresh air at the end. Yeah. yeah. Really is. So my number nine, um, it, this is off of his uh, last record, um, but it is the song Lazarus. Um, so trust me, I did juggle with going back and forth, but this one just cuts me like a knife. I mean, um, it is essentially his farewell song. I'm going to have quite the playlist when at my own funeral, I expect this song to be played. Um, and it's just a, uh, just amazing, like closing song. That's just like at the end of the letter that you would write to somebody. Um, it's, uh, if you catch me on a, a certain day, it'll just stop me dead in my tracks and I'll stare out the window and I'll listen to this song. Um, that's some great songwriting, both just the melody and how he sings it. Um, it's enough to make me get even choked up just thinking about it. It's just one of those powerful songs in his catalog that uh, d- deserves to be in one of his 
best songs for oh, yeah. me at least oh yeah you can't separate it from that video either because i because i because i just remember watching it and be like holy shit this was all plan <laughs> watching that right. watching that video and i can't separate i can't separate the two it is you're right it's so so damn powerful and and beautiful and just uh i i i hear you we're number we're number eight and uh this one is probably it's uh, probably going to be frustrating because, you know, I, I, I but I could not make my list without paying respect to the instrumental songs from the low era. And my favorite being Subterraneans, you know, he made side B of low uh, instrumental. It was supposed to be cold. It was it was inspired by uh, part of the world that was inspiring him at that point. He uh, the whole process, I mean, he, what, what, once Brian Eno got involved, use of synthesizers and production tricks that would still exist through all of the best work he would do moving forward. And I, I just really do. I, I mean, I love the song. I love the saxophone use melding with the crazy techniques they use for that synthesizer where they would set up a click track and only change uh, key when it would hit certain clicks and then cut and paste and splice and then yeah that sax comes in the chanting comes in and then um you know of course you know the, the nine inch nails connection because nine inch nails would play this often um with trent on sax um it just represents i mean i had to pick one and i mean i guess how do you differentiate between subterraneans and warsaw or whatever but um i don't know something about this also has the the, the nostalgic connection for me um and I, if it didn't have these instrumental tracks on the Berlin Trilogy, I could say that the Berlin Trilogy wouldn't be as as meaningful to me as it is. So, there you go. No, I agree with what you're saying. I just don't know if I would make that, like, if I was showing the Space Alien, my top 10 songs of David Bowie, I just don't know if I would include an instrumental. I love that they're there, of course. Um, I think it fits perfectly on the record, but if I was to just pick it out and give someone, like, an example of what David Bowie was all about. That's where I would potentially argue and debate with you. But I also, but I also agree. Hold on a sec. I also agree with the fact that you're trying to show how many different facets that David Bowie had. So I I do appreciate the representation. I would say funny, funny. You say you wouldn't show an alien that because I made a playlist of these top 10 songs and I actually put them in an order, not necessarily order. I'm listing them now, but the, the most listenable order and if you put subterraneans like smack dab between so many bangers and and slappers, uh, it actually it's a nice little break. It's a nice little it's a nice little place to center yourself. A little you warm into, place for you, if you will. There you go. Might I play Newman in that episode of Seinfeld with Elaine and Kramer fighting over the bike and claiming we will cut your opinions in half, and you're both right. Mark, I would not say Subterraneans goes on a top 10 list for an alien. But Eric, an instrumental song is not terribly a bad idea, just not this one. Stay tuned. Interesting. All right. Intrigued. My number right, eight. right, Stephen. Yeah. My number eight is also not as much Regency bias as Secret Life of Arabia, but it is another one of the podcast. Uh, like, let's say if I don't bring up... Um, uh, Five years doesn't make my top ten list tonight, and it's not going to. It's because a song like Strangers When We Meet kicked it out. Uh, Strangers When We Meet.
bored of me. Uh, I also like songs where I go on and on for five minutes about how I think, you guys, uh, if we want to cure COVID, we just got to all listen to this song. And then I say, hey, Mark, what do you think? And he goes, ah, it's not terrible. <laughs> I remember Strangers, Strangers was one of those. Um, it really, for me, just all the notes hit the right places. I like the lyrics. I like the pace of it. I do like a good mid-90s Britpop song, which is what it basically is. It could be a pulp song. Um, it's optimistic. Uh, I just had a kid recently, and it was a song that I listened to a lot when I first held him. Um, even though so you're, part of it, you're, talk, you're talking about the outside version. Yes, I am. Thank you for... Yep, thank you. The outside version is far superior than the Buddha Suburbia version. Um, I just like it. I like the lyrics. Um, I think it's good, and I think it... The fact that David Bowie recorded it for two albums tells you that he thought it was great, too. And um, I like the title, Strangers When We Meet. That's a title that that and Always Crashing in the Same Car were two song titles that even when I wasn't familiar with the songs, I liked the song titles when I would see them in a David Bowie list of songs or some such. Sure. So, Strangers When We Meet, it, may, it, it, it clawed its way in and Eric Should Be Happy, an outside song made its way onto the list. It makes me very happy. Um, yeah, I didn't. I didn't let outside take over my list. I only chose one, but that would have been up there. Yeah, I, I mean, it's still just a song that uh, I have a hard time remembering the melody and the lyrics. Um, it, but it is nice to know that uh, when I was looking through some of the Facebook comments on that uh, episode that we had posted, that one is a sleeper hit with a lot of our listeners. So. Well done. I just apparently am still haven't uh, acquired the taste for it yet. So maybe maybe I'll uh, do a Clockwork Orange kind of thing and uh, force it down me to make it happen, as you said. Or make, like make I was fetch happen. Or like I was telling two coworkers yesterday when I was talking about something and how a good movie can make me cry. And then I said, but if for ten hours I'm told I better cry when Robert Duvall dies. Um, I might not cry, and Mark's dad will hate me. <laughs> yep. If you don't cry, Steve, you're walking home. Yep. I was on, it's I was the on old vac- Lonesome Dove story. Yeah, I was on vacation with Mark's family in high school, and I think we've told this before, but the entire time watching Lonesome Dove, and his, his father was telling me the entire time that at the end when, uh, spoilers, one of the old cowboys dies, if I don't cry, if Mark and I don't cry, we are soulless. And uh, I don't remember if Mark cried, but. He built it up. Well, that wasn't the first time that I've seen that movie. The first time I didn't know that it was going to happen. And boy, oh boy, was I like cutting onions. Yeah. I'll tell you that. But he, he built it up so much that I didn't cry. And yeah. uh, I think he just silently judged me, which Scott tends to do to everybody. He was like, he's a serial killer. Watch that kid. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, uh, speaking of uh, serial killers, what's your number eight? My number eight. Uh, <clears throat> I, I don't know if this will be on your list because it's an obvious choice and you guys are not playing the obvious game tonight. Um, but it is Ashes to Ashes. All right, we'll talk about that later. What, Hold up. Hey. Yeah, no. yeah I mean, <laughs> I don't want to be completely obvious sometimes, but uh, come on. It's, I uh, know. All right. Let's not get... Just making sure. Yeah. If I if, if you can make a top 10 billion list without Ashes to Ashes on it, I, you're, it's not a true top 10 list. Well, I just want to make sure and that we're both, not going to like pull actually, out some like fucking weird shit. <laughs> I, I, I omitted a song that I know is in my top 10 because I knew you guys would talk about it ad nauseum. 
and you'll you know later we can have this talk again but um yeah i i, I have a feeling i know which song yeah. you're talking about but that, whatever. Uh, there's so many great songs you got to make room for more so uh so my number seven is hello space boy that's a good one it's not on my list but i do like it yeah yeah, yeah that was definitely in the running of my round one yeah, bye bye line. Bye bye line. Yeah, bye bye line. Bye bye Yeah, so I had to decide on my outside album, my outside songs. Um, the title track to outside was almost going to win. Hurts uh, uh, Filthy Lesson has so much nostalgia that it, I was worried it was clouding my vision. Hello, Space Boy has just enough nostalgia and just enough, enough object, objective perfectness to it. It's, it's uh, dancey, it's, it's rough, it's grimy, but it is shimmery rock at the same time. And um, he's doing something with his vocals on that that will just get stuck in your head and repeating on a loop uh, for a while. Um, and he just sounds invigorated. He absolutely is just, you know, it may not have felt like a comeback to him at the time or the people around him because it wasn't a big hit, but it sounds like a comeback when you hear him sing that song. It's, it's, it's wonderful, and it's a, it's a great little <laughs> part of a story. You know, it's a beautiful little song about a art detective interrogating a artist you know it's beautiful at a dance club it's beautiful great song a heavy song closest to metal i think he's ever done it's a rocker the live versions were great whenever he would play them uh, a lot of bands covered it one of my favorite metal bands covered it that would be behemoth they did a terrible job but i like the fact that they gave it a shot I love that song. Good choice. It is a great song. Um, that has always been one of my highlights on Outside. Um, it uh, it just feels relevant. It doesn't feel like Bowie's just being cheesy in terms of just trying to be in with the in crowd during the time, like I had mentioned. Solid song. Just not enough for me to be on the, my top 10, but it was definitely in my maybe top 25, 2050 maybe, but it's, it's definitely in there. And that's a fun one with Mike Garson. He has a great piano break um, where the piano just sounds like it's racing the, uh, all the other Sonics going on at the same time. It's awesome. Uh, My number seven, if I were to pick one David Bowie instrumental song, if I were to pick one instrumental song ever, and possibly it has my favorite, if I were to pinpoint my favorite David Bowie musical moment, it's all in the song. It's a new career in a new town. That's really good. good song. It's really good. I feel like that's very an optimistic o- song. I feel like yeah. It's an obvious song too. It's not on either of your lists. No. Wow. For me, that's a, that's fine. It's just, it's a top 10 Bowie song with a bullet for me. I've always loved it ever since I heard it. I have a very fond memory of seeing it live at that dumb Moby festival. Um, it's a Carlos Alamore tar- tour de force. And it's that harmonica, man. That harmonica is one of my favorite musical moments of all time.
So, you know, it sounds like an alternate universe where David Bowie uh, was the talking heads. It's just a great, cool song. I love it. You know, I think my brain didn't go to it first, and I love that song. I really do. And now that you say it, I, I feel like I, I've, I've really shit the bed. Um, but uh, I think my brain didn't go to it because I was going to like, okay, that Berlin instrumental sound is like this ambient electronic sound. That's where my that's that's what I think. That's that's why I went with that. But uh, and and that song you're talking about is definitely full band having a lot of fun doing an instrumental song. It's it's lovely. It's wonderful. It's infectious. No, it's a very optimistic song. I have nothing against that song. Um, definitely that little harmonica sound. Can, I'm hearing it in my ears right now. Um, it's it's great. It's great. It's just like I said, um, not uh, not to parse here, but I, I wanted to show Bowie his vocal prowess on my top ten. It definitely would be up there in his just all timer songs, but uh, just not enough for me to crack my top ten. But it's a great choice. I mean, not not hating. So we can move on to my number seven. My number seven is my only song. I'll go ahead and spoil it right now that I picked from this album. Uh, it is five years from Ziggy Stardust. You're gonna have to hold that under your hat for a little while. Sounds good. Well, Eric, number six. Yes, Eric, number six. And I suspect I'll have to hold this one. It would be the uh, titular Station to Station. Yeah. Oh, man, right on the money. That was my, my number six, too. Fantastic. Right. Well, you're going to both. <laughs> we're going to have to wait a few more. Um, but let me talk about my number six, and then we'll go back to Eric's number five. Um, my number six is Black Star. Eric, what did you want to say about Black Star? Something happened on the day he died. The spirit rose and meet up and stepped aside. Somebody else took his place and bravely cried. I'm a black star. I'm a black star. How many times does an angel fall? How many people lie instead of talking tall? He trod the sacred ground. He cried loud into the crowd. I mean, and this was a, a push and pull for me because this this album has a lot of cool songs. It, the emotional connection to the ones specifically about reflecting on life or dying seemed to be the obvious choice because they are so good, especially Lazarus. But this song paired with the video, which came out before any of us knew he was dying. We just thought, oh, Bowie's got a new song. And it's insane. This video is nuts what are these scarecrows gyrating on in the cornfield what are these dancers doing uh who is this button eyes character it was like that was a lot of fun 
And, and, but then listening to the song on its own without the video, it still holds up. It takes you on a 10 minute journey, um, that goes from his new, like alt jazz to just some good old funky stuff that you could have found on his earlier songs. Um, it is, it's, it's not so reflective as it is a callback to his station to station era obsession with Aleister Crowley and, um, some of the more evil things he would write about. Uh, and especially this, like, this idea of a uh, you know uh, a charismatic leader that that takes his followers and, and 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 takes advantage of them and and basically leads them to hell, which he's written about countless times, fully realized in this song. Um, and it just sounds cool. It's just cool as hell. Uh, anyways, I like Blackstar a lot. Yeah, no, it does sound cool. Um, sonically, Blackstar is a very well produced album. If you listen to that album with headphones, you get to hear a lot of crazy shit. And they really do a good job of making the drums do some weird, weird stuff. And I think the drums in Black Star are actually what make it stand out for me. Um, go ahead, back, go back and listen to it again and focus on the drums. They're incredible. Uh, the lyrics are fun. The vocals. He did a great job singing on that last album. I think Black Star has some great vocals on it. And I also, though, like the like I like it whenever Bowie does weird Muppet vocals. And the uh, the I'm a black star. I, I love that little affected background voice that happens there. Um, what really sells that song, though, for me is the midsection where it gets almost pretty and slows down a little bit. Uh, I think it's great. Something happened the day. He yeah. Died. And then when it goes back into the sinister part, it does a great job of it. Um, great song. And speaking of station to station, yeah, I think it's a good sister song. Even if you take away the station to station era obsessions with Crowley, sonically, a song that takes you on a journey like that's always a lot of fun. Seven minutes has like three major parts. Uh, Black Star was a, a hell of a hell of a final hell, hell of a song to have in your final batch of songs. Uh, I, I really do like it. It's the only song on here from anything from the zeros from from the after the turn of the century for me. Um, so I dig it. Black star. It absolutely is a excellent song and it's a great representation of how Bowie can play in different uh, genres of music. You get a little bit of jazz funk. I mean, it's just, it's a great song and that essentially is an organ grinder uh, for the, uh, um, just how experimental Bowie can be. And uh, this is what comes out. So, I understand why it's on there. It's just not on mine, but it certainly was in the running. So good pick. I'm glad you guys picked it so we could talk about it. Eric, we're going to go to number five. Right. That'll be five years. And, uh, This 
was after I had already knew I liked Bowie from the 90s. This was the first song for me actually starting to go back to his his back catalog and appreciate some some stuff. And I was as far as getting Ziggy, I was later than you guys on that. But um, what an opening song it sure it opens the story to Ziggy Stardust, but it stands alone as its own little story. Um, that drum roll uh, that slowly builds that guitar riff that just kind of gets repetitive and, until it gets huge. Um, and then his vocals that, you know, go from uh, just kind of explaining this scene that sounds, you know, fine enough, but uh, before, as he adds a little bit more description to it, you realize you're talking about, you know, end times and then it just cracks into a wail uh, until the end of the song. It's so dramatic and, and so good. And, you know, I think we kind of all go back and forth on theatricalities in music and if a song can stand alone without those. And this one, I think it actually benefits from the theatricalities and, uh, and uh, it's lovely. I, I, I'm a huge fan of the song. It is a great song. Um, uh, for all the reasons that you had essentially outlined there, just how it slowly kind of builds up and um, just the lyrical imagery that's going on there. That's very just excellent songwriting. Um, and it's emotional. It sets the scene for essentially what the kind of loose concept that you're going to be getting on Ziggy. And um, uh, yeah, it's just at the very end, how the sing along, how the whole band starts to come in with five years. Um, that's all we got. You know, it's, it's so good. Um, so good. Yeah, I'll agree. I am. Um... Hearing that song for the first time was a seminal part of my life. But there was another moment from the Ziggy Stardust era that struck me harder, which I'll talk about later. But five years, yeah, it's a, that's a, if someone were to make a songbook of the 20th century, uh, it should definitely be on there. All right. Um, so, Steve, I think it's your number five. My number five is all the madmen. song it's always yeah i've always felt like that song resonated with me more than other people when i first went through my david bowie discovery period that was one that uh, automatically got put in the uh, the rolodex um i like the lyrics uh, I, I the whole you know the day after day versus the go into the i'd rather stay here versus i love the way they interplay with each other and I mentioned in the uh, episode for Man of Soul, the world, there's a lot of good uh, synths that pan back and forth between your uh, speakers, which is some of your, you know, typical early 70s Pink Floydish attempt at, uh, you know, uh, audiophonics. I think that song really nails it. It does a lot with a little. 
and uh, it's it's also another. You know, Bowie has some lyrical themes he returns to, and I'm sure there's a tie to how he feels about his own mind and his brother's mind in that song. Uh, I think it's a great track. It's a good... It was what he was trying to do in Space Oddity, realized, which is like a really meaty, heavy folk song. But he nailed it with all the Mad Men. I I dig it. Always loved it. Uh, Are we on my number five? Yes. Um... I am on Teenage Wildlife. <laughs> no surprise here. We're going to come back to that. Okay. I was like, how is this not on Steven's list? Yeah, but... no, I was, I was muted for, okay. for dramatic effect. All right. So if that was your number five, right? Yes. So Eric, your number four. Five. We may have to roll this one up in our collective sleeves and save it for later, but uh, Heroes. Hold yeah, that we'll thought. Come, we'll, we'll come back to that. Uh, my number four is Station to Station. Did you two already pick it? Yeah, it was both our number two. Okay, so Eric, we'll start with you for Station to Station. Actually, hold, hold on, hold on. What did you guys rate it? Number six. Six. What'd you... Philistines. It's a, nothing lower than a four for this song, you fools. <laughs> all right. I love, I love that the abuse doesn't stop. It's all in our top tens, but we're still... Anyways. Uh, Station to Station is... Uh, Bowie is messing with some production tricks on this song. It takes two minutes for the song to kick in. You've got a train leaving the station. You you have piano and cymbal clinking slowly until the other instruments join in and start in their own little little train going through the tube, if you will. Um, and uh, for for an album that Bowie doesn't even remember making, this song is. I mean, he does a great job on this song. It's a just a vomit of every, uh, you know, religious paranoia, but also uh, a cult interest that he's had at the time, just kind of mixed together and coming out. Um, but in a fun way, uh, and this, and, but then he's kind of, uh, slathering that over his new caricature, this thin white Duke who throws darts in lover's eyes. He's a complete asshole going from town to town, uh, essentially raping and pillaging. Um, yes, he was 
he was dabbling in a fascist ideal, but it was, you know, despite some things he said at the time, it was clear that he wasn't supposed to be playing a hero in this song. Um, and uh, it's one of his darkest tracks uh, lyrically, um, but he sings it great. But let's get Bowie out of the way on, on that because his band really shines on this song. Um, I just mo- mostly said I'm for Bowie not remembering it. He holds it together very well and does a fantastic job, but his band is killing it on this 10 minute, you know, seven minute track or whatever, but it is a train leaving the station going a lot of places and, uh, and it gets uh, absolutely, you know, funky during that chorus. And it's a great, it's a great time, but I'm sure you guys have more to say. I mean, it sounds like a, you know, a literal train, um, with all the gears, twi- uh, you know, turning and you got the plucking of the guitar that kind of gives that rhythmic machinery sound. Um, but when the train really starts getting rolling with, it's too late, it's too late. And uh, Bowie's just doing his thing, his little shaking, his little booty. Um, it's such a great song. I mean, it's a hell of a, a journey. It's pro- it's one of my favorite of his long songs. Um, but yeah, everything around it is just, band is playing tight as a drum and uh it kind of sneaks up on you with kind of this sinister uh feeling and then all of a sudden it turns into a a party it's it's good time yeah and i love the first half where it's all sinister and wavy vocals and just oddness is awesome i love that a guy that just put out young americans starts his next album off with the song that starts off like that and uh I mean, that's that part's all great. I don't know. Maybe no matter what happens in the second he- section, you'd still like Station to Station a lot. But the second section of that song is why everybody remembers it. And if you want to get back to your like seminal Bowie points, you remember just audio cues. When the slow section then goes into the boom, boom, little drum, drum kick, drum beat, uh, that then goes into the, the shuffle danceable part. It's incredible. It's like uh, you're... It's like you're stepping through the door of Oz from the black and white version to the color version. It's such a awesome trick that they do there. And the, the mountains upon mountains lyric uh, is, is great. Uh, those, those lyrics in general, Eric really dissected them well in that episode. Um, I think it's a, it's a lyrical tour de force, even if he didn't know what the hell he was talking about when he wrote it. Um, and just the emotion of the whole, it's too late uh, refrain and how the song starts chugging along and it's just a dance, a dance party <laughs> that keeps saying the European canon is here. It's the, the avant-garde meets the swagger and the groove, man. It's just incredible that track. And I've always liked it since I first, first heard it. The podcast made me appreciate it even more. And it, it easily his top five songs. You could probably if you're, if you're making a top five song list of David Bowie, the top five songs could all be the number one. I think this could also be my number one Bowie song. It's, it's, it, it's a, the, the way I say scary monsters encapsulates his whole career station to station encapsulates his whole career in one track. It's totally cool. Um, so my number four, um, was look back in anger. And I think that was on both of your lists. Yep. That was my number nine. It was not on my list, and okay. um, probably if there wasn't a Secret Life of Arabia or a, a New Career in a New Town, it would be on my list. 
Mark, Mark, why don't you take a stab at this one first? The speaker was an angel. He coughed and shook his crumpled wings, closed his eyes, moved his lips. This time we should be going. Hands down, the band is playing at just such a high level. And um, what really made me appreciate was Dennis Davis is just putting on a clinic. Um, that stripped-down video where Tony Visconti is um, having that conversation with his son, Tony or Dennis Davis' son, and just the technical work that he was doing on behind the, the kit was just something that I have to appreciate. Um, Bowie is singing um, just on point everything is just just perfectly put together carlos alomar has just an amazing um uh like rhythm guitar type solo that's in this song it's just um this is the one that uh it's just that band that he had put together they were just firing in all cylinders um it's just a really great rock and rock and song that's all i can say yeah, exactly. And um, everything you said about Dennis Davies is a big part of why I love this track. Uh, the rhythm section goes nuts. It's, it's fast, but it rocks. I love that it can be interpreted as the other side of the conversation in Man Who Sold the World. Um, it definitely fits into the angel quadrilogy of songs that he, that he made. Um, and yeah, his vocals are great, and it's just a great example of where he was during Lodger a woefully underappreciated album. So, yeah. It's a good song. It's a very good song. What is the number three? Eric, what's your number three? My number three is, I mean, what would a finale list be without Eric shoving a remix into it? Um, <laughs> but but my, my number three is the Nine Inch Nails remix of I'm Afraid of America. Hold on. All right, I've uh, I've, I've conferred with Mark off mic. We'll we'll or we'll we'll allow it. We'll allow it. All right. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, it was on my uh, like a rough draft, but um, I knew that I wasn't going to be able to give it to him. As much as I have so much appreciation for that song, um, I couldn't necessarily put it on my list. But I'm so glad that you did, Eric. Yeah. I gotta say that is like in the top five all time 
remixes that are way more well known than the original version. Yes. You wouldn't even know yes. it's a remix. Yeah. Yes. I was gonna say. Um, yeah. I was gonna say if they didn't remix this song, the original would not be. Yep. On my top ten. Um, and you know, part of it is the emotional attachment to it. Nine Inch Nails is why I got into Bowie. Um, I think it's the same for all of us um, and a lot of our listeners. Um, and, uh, and but just the way the song is elevated. Actually, I, I, I listened to it again recently, and I specifically just listened to the back the music in the background. And there's a lot of like fret buzzing going on, and uh, like like high like really high notes on a guitar that are clinking. It sounds like proto fragile. Like, and this was right before they recorded the fragile. And he had the whole yeah. the whole band. He had he had his whole, you know, his uh, Chris Renna's and Charlie Klauser's on on this. And uh, and you can it really sounds like they were getting in a headspace to record the fragile. I think that makes it really special. Um, but beyond that, the song is cool. I mean, it goes back to a a, a song that he and Eno worked on. Maybe one of the last ones they worked on uh, from outside. Um, and uh, it, I mean, it's a cool song in general because it's it's basically just a scathing look at, you know, a, a violent and selfish American culture. And while I'm sure that exists elsewhere, I think we we've definitely deserve it. And uh, uh, and then, yeah, and then it's done. You pair it with that video and that remix. Um, it just is the best of both worlds uh, for me. And it's, it, it's an important one. And I, I couldn't help it. And. I was going to put it lower and then I just keep after we did that episode of earthling, I just kept listening to it and kept listening to it and I got to put it high, especially considering nine stills got me into Bowie. So, Oh yeah, man. I mean, I, in the episode we talked about, it, I love that remix. Uh, the end of that remix is you might say you think they're heading in the, the direction of the fragile and I'll give you that. But the end of that remix also is total dis- machine. downward spiral era, nine inch nails. Uh, with the dreads in the perfect drug yeah 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 just uh the the non 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 all that stuff is great it's a good song i i love it a lot i have very fond memories of when it first came out uh that video from the the day it came out we were all over it and um yeah awesome the late 90s man they were a good time it would have been hilarious uh, during the windup if uh, Eric said, you know, I'm a remix guy and he picked fame 1990 or something. Like that. <laughs> the Queen Latifah version. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, the pretty woman, you know, his his inclusion on the pretty women soundtrack. I just it, it just got me, you know, or but the, I'm yeah. glad that yeah. <laughs> the breakdance remix of Time Roll Crawl. You never know with me. <laughs> you never know with me. <laughs> Oh man, that's fantastic! But yeah, it's a great song. I I, uh, I have great memories for it. I mean, it's one of the all-time remix songs. I can't say anything more about it. But I'm glad that you brought it up. Um, so my number, actually, Stephen, it's your it's your number three. Sorry, my number three is Ashes to Ashes. You both already picked it, right? Yeah. Yep. But, it was but, my uh, number eight. I'm not ready to talk about that one yet. All right. Oh, proud of you, Eric. I'm proud of you. Um. We'll come back to it. What's your number three, Mark? Stay uh, from Station to Station. I had two Station to Station songs. That song is got um, stay, just, stay. It was it was asking to be the number ten for me. Tell me all about it. That's what I meant to say or do something, but what I never say is stay this time. I really meant to so bad this time. 
Slick, of course. Um, it just is so fucking catchy. Um, again, um, the band is tight as a drum. For me, Stay and Look Back in Anger, um, they need to be uh, just attached at the hip. I thought they would cancel, one would cancel the other out, but I'm just like, no. They're up there for a reason. I like that song a lot. It just stays in my mind. Um, Bowie's just got an excellent vocal performance in that song. And uh, again, it's just the band is just humming. They're cooking. Uh, but just, yeah, have to include it on my list. Oh, yeah, man. That whole doom, 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 doom. Is they're all warming up? Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. Awesome. That, that, that song definitely revs up and then they, they all race. It's, uh, it's awesome. Yeah. And the percussion's killing you and the, the bass lines, just the low end's really produced and mixed in it well. You can't beat the guitar riff. Um, it's definitely, that's like LCD sound system said, Hey, that's what we want to do. Exactly. One of those songs. And yeah, no, I love that song. Um, and again, that's a Carlos Alomar. Uh, he's, he's doing the rhythm guitar, uh, work on that one. Like nobody's business. Uh, it's got that La Chique kind of feel. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah I'm it's, the, a, it's a great song. I'm the worst for talking about live versions, but I have been tracking the live version version of this song because there's a couple really cool uh, live albums from this era with his band because uh, his live band during this time was just unbeatable. And uh, they did it great live, which I think is a good indication, when you, especially a song like this, um, if they can pull that off. And then even like if you follow them into like the Earthling era, they, they resurrected it. And that band did a fantastic job with it too. So yeah, it's, it's good. It's I do have to say the, there are many, many uh, live David Bowie albums in the seventies. There's tons of good ones. It's fun to see how his band would reinterpret the songs. Like I think that, uh, the Carlos Alomar led blackout, uh, versions of moon age daydream are so much fun and way different, but the, the same song as the, uh, Mick Ronson years. Um, a lot of fun stuff in the live albums. Yeah, I mean, it's I, that was one thing that I, I probably would have done differently to go back to that original question. I didn't pay a whole lot of attention to actually doing my homework on the live renditions. Um, so maybe if I was a little bit more bandwidth as I was prepping for episodes, I probably would have included that. But I just always failed on that front. We're only human, Mark. Exactly. Exactly. Eric, what's your number two? My number two is a little ditty called Sound and Vision. Waiting for the gift of sound and vision Drifting into my solitude Over my head Don't you wonder sometimes About sound and vision Sound 
I had to put a low song very high up here because that album just means so much to me as we talked about in our favorite albums. Sound and Vision is the perfect melding of um, his kind of funky pop approach to stuff and his, this new Brian Eno layer of sound and noise. Um, this uh, the, These drums run through a harmonizer, uh, all sorts of crazy stuff. Um, lyrical content is, you know, it's, it is, it's basically like, it's a very depressing song, um, feeling blue and, and how depression can, uh, completely, uh, derail the artistic process. Um, but, uh, but and still they're having fun. It, it, it's a great, it was a great era for you to have write a sad song, but still have fun with it. And, um, yeah, this song is just just uh, just gets just gets in my ears, man. It uh, it's great. It's a great song. I um, I could have easily kicked out New Career New Town and put Sound and Vision in. They both uh, they both chart just about as high for me. Um, yeah, I, I think it's a great track. It has a just such great production and the shimmering keyboards and, I mean, I named our. Uh, our little spreadsheet when we started this project sound and vision where we collected all the, yeah, our, our stuff, because I think it's a, I mean, he also named a series of box sets after it. Um, just a cool, cool summation of everything he's all about. Yeah. That sounds very basic, but the sound and the vision. Yeah. The, uh, Good song. that whole brown, brown. Yeah. It's just, uh, Oh boy. Now I'm stuck. Now it's stuck again. Yeah. Just talking about it. It's great. Sound and vision for me, like I remember saying this on the episode, it sounds like it, it could be, uh, it just, it gives me like a Christmas feel. I don't know what it is. Um, it's, it's like a, it's a good feeling. Of course. It's not like it's a, uh, a, a cut against that song. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it's a good track. Uh, I definitely see why it's on that list. Um, I remember hearing it in target as I was shopping in the women's section. And so, yeah, it's definitely a iconic Bowie song. Yeah, I, I, I'm breaking. I'm breaking my rule on uh, you know these uh, very like mainstream Bowie songs, but uh, I can't help it. It's a great song. Speaking of Christmas, uh, I do want to take this moment <laughs> to reflect that our Christmas episode was one of my favorite things we did during this uh, season. It was a that was a great time. Oh yeah, just huddling up around your fire and uh, drinking uh, fireballs or whatever. Fireball. Well, I mean, yeah, <laughs> looking looking back with the uh, the way the world's gone since then. I mean, we didn't know that might have been the last time for years we get to do that. So That's true, true, true. true. Yeah, invite you guys over out of the cold and keep each other warm. Uh, number two, is it my number two now? I think so. It is. Uh, so my number two is Teenage Wildlife. Okay. Yeah, that was my number five. Go ahead. Yeah, Steve. your number five, my number two. Uh, that in various drafts was number one with a bullet. As a matter of fact, I'll go ahead and say it. This was number one until a few days ago. Um, and I'll tell you guys why when we talk about my number one.
Swedish wildlife, though, um, uh, I stated my case on the episode where I broke it down almost minute by minute with the Stephen Chambers Teenage Wildlife Minute by Minute podcast, which was thrilling radio for everyone, I'm sure. Um, I've just always, that song has always heavily affected me from the first time I heard it. It seems like a cousin song to Heroes. Uh, I have an affinity for Robert Fripp for many reasons. One is his talent. Uh, two is when I got into King Crimson because of my friends, our friend Sarab and the band Tool, I felt like I discovered a genre I didn't know existed, which was like really smart, but still heavy jazz rock, which is jazz fusion, essentially. But they put a prog spin on it, and they're much more than that. I always felt like Robert Fripp was one of my guys. And when he would pop up in Bowie songs, it made me like those songs more. I feel on this song, he puts his best foot forward. I think he always does a great job when he shows up in David Bowie songs. But on this one, I think he really makes it sing. He's the extra element that really just takes it up a level. Um, He's playing in around the melodies, and he's all over the place, but still grounds the track. Uh, As the song soars, he soars. It's great. And there's an element there with Robert Fripp where I've mentioned before. I first heard of him when my dad told me about King Crimson when I was a kid. And me and my dad have an odd relationship. But most of my fond memories of my father do reflect upon music influence. And the fact that he told me about Robert Fripp always meant a lot to me. Because he's like, you know, I'm like eight. And he's like, hey, Steve, King Crimson's a good band. I'm like, you're telling your eight-year-old this? That's interesting. Um, Yeah, I just, uh, the Bowie's delivery is great. Tony Visconti does some backup vocals, I believe. Um, The backup vocals, like, there are great, like, just team-up backup vocals. I know Visconti's got to be in the mix. I'm pretty sure he is. If he's not, there's a a whole bunch of people singing together on that track, where it sounds great. Um, The chilly receptions everywhere you go. Love that line. That... That, that part where they, the David, what would I do? I pass in the hallways. I say, don't look at me, man. I don't know any hallways. That's so weird. Um, everything about it's just wonderful. And I said it before the song was written kind of as a observation of those who he influenced and those who just kind of like the Robert Smith's and the Gary Newman's of the world that maybe he was like, Hey, get your own identity. And at the same time, sounds incredibly biting and romantic at the same time. It's a hell of a trick. It's a long, great song. It has many movements. It has multiple guitar solos. It has everything I want out of a track. Uh, the only reason it's not my number one is because there's another song that, like I just said, you're going to hear about is my number one. Teenage Wildlife could have been that track, though. It's extremely affecting to me. Mark, what do you think about it? Uh, I mean, I agree with pretty much all that sentiment. Um, I mean, the only thing I'll add, uh, is just Bowie's, uh, vocals. Um, I've never heard him sing higher (laughs) at a higher range than on that song. Um, he's just, just a great song. I, I mean, you've, you've really, uh, characterized it as best you could. And it is exactly how you described it. It is just, he's vocally at uh just hitting on all cylinders so yeah i i don't really want to just say the repeat of everything you just said but it is exactly why it is in my top 10 yeah a couple i mean a couple points vocally in that song that really just get you i mean 
that whole like you know i can't you know da 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 like a leaf from a tree yeah da 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 you know that that little section oh, yeah. there that just oh, yeah. it'll bring a tear to your eye if you're in the right mood yeah. And then, yeah, he just, and I miss notes. you, da, da, da. you know, it's, uh, yeah. it's, 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 I, I've always, it's another track that has a great song title. I think Teenage Wildlife is a, just a cool song title. Yeah. And I've always felt like ever since it grabbed it, me, I always wondered like, why isn't this everybody else's favorite song? Yeah. It's kind of weird. I always felt like it should have been more heralded. Um, so there you go. Teenage Wildlife. I'll never forget the time I saw this song live by David Bowie and then promptly forgot that I saw this song live by David Bowie until 2019, where I looked on set list, list FM and realized I saw this song live by David Bowie during the outside tour. We're very happy for you. Uh, I'll never it's forget a great the time song. It's a great song. I'll, I'll never forget the time that Mark and I saw a five years live. So what are you going to do? So my number two, if that's to me, um, speaking of which, seeing David Bowie live, this is the song that he opened with when I very first saw David Bowie live, and that would be Life on Mars. There's so many stories I could tell you. I wish I could have more time to tell you things like... (laughs) Things I could tell you... (laughs) Oh, you don't know the half of it. It's on America's tortured brow That Mickey Mouse has grown up a cow and the workers have struck for fame For Lennon's on sale again See the mice in their million hordes From Ibiza to the Norfolk Broads Rule Britannia is out of bounds To my mother, my dog and clowns But the film is a saddening bore For I've lived it ten times or more It's about to be lived again As I ask you to focus on sailors Fighting in the dance hall the freakiest show Take a look at the man beating up the wrong guy Oh man Wonder if he'll ever know It's the best-selling show Is there life on song um, and 
having it be featured in uh, the Watchmen HBO show was just icing on the cake. Uh, this could have been, and to kind of steal a little page out of Steven's playbook, this could have been my number one. Um, it, In fact, it was my number one, uh, thinking that this is the one that emotionally resonates with me. I have fond memories of watching him walk out on stage as the opening piano riff played. Um, it was a very emotional moment for me, seeing a living icon uh, doing his thing live uh, was... Uh, it was probably a feeling that I, I don't know. I mean, I could probably say the first time that I saw Nine Inch Nails also kind of hit me like a ton of bricks. Um, but it was a very cool moment. The song is an amazing song. Um, and it's, again, got some incredible imagery uh, lyrically. And it is just Bowie singing to the rafters. It is a fantastic, phenomenal song. That's all I'll say about life on Mars. I'll say that it was in it was in a few different top tens for me. Uh, definitely is is worthy. Um, yeah, it's one of the greatest rock pop songs I think around. No matter if you think David Bowie wrote it or Elton John, but uh, yeah, it's a, a beautiful piece of music. I would argue that it's not sappy, Mark. Uh, lyrically at all, I mean the song's not. Sa- it's 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 just like creative and, and, and sometimes cynical enough. Um, it's not, it's not sappy. It's just, it's, it's overused, I guess. Um, maybe that's better yeah, description. Yeah. Of it, yeah, I think. yeah. Yeah. Because it's not, he's not trying to go cheesemo. He's not pulling at the heartstrings in the song at all. Um, and, uh, I think it's a great choice. I love it. It's iconic, clearly iconic. And if we were doing just a list of iconic Bowie songs, it would probably be one or two with a bullet, no doubt. Um, I mean, my son played it for a piano recital and exactly. for, for that, I will always, uh, I look wistfully on it and maybe even shed a tear. It's, 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 it's got it's incredible. It's got really good visual uh, lyrics too. the whole strangers fighting in the dance hall. Exactly. Oh man. Look at those, uh, cavemen, cavemen go. go. Yeah. Uh, police beating that's up, awesome. the, that, it, beating up it the really, wrong guy. It paints a picture and that's, it's really good at doing that. You know, I think, uh, it's, it's great that you mentioned, you know, uh, cause I believe you, you also included a snippet of Lennox playing that on that episode that we did. Yeah. And then of course, seeing the, um, the video of it, just the pride that I saw you feel for your son was pretty amazing. It was a high water mark for me as a father, uh, for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm getting a little trembly thinking about it. Thank you. All right. Now, I'm I'm the worst of us at math. Always have been. How many songs do we have left? We have one. One. Number one. And Interesting. I think, I don't know if all three of us are going to be hitting the trifecta on this one, but... No, I don't uh, think we are. As a no. matter of fact, I'm, I'm a little confused here. Eric, did you do your math wrong? No, I didn't. I didn't. I put oh. Heroes 4, and I put Ashes to Ashes as my number okay. one. Okay. I didn't hear you say Heroes is 4. <laughs> Okay. All right, let's do our number ones then. Ashes, um, ashes to Ashes is my number one. Okay. For sure. Uh, I'm going to I'm gonna go first, even though... It. Do it. Ashes to Ashes could easily be my number one. Easily. I could name my kid Ashes to Ashes. I could uh, write my book of my life and call it Ashes to Ashes. I, um, I think about this song all the time. 
I feel like this song has been with me all my life. It's got this weird, all-encompassing feel that can travel in and out of time. It could be written anytime, anywhere. It, like, uh, it's the beginning and end of David Bowie on a storytelling level, on a sonic level. It has some lyrical passages that can make you extremely emotional. It has a touch of the avant-garde and the weirdness to it in the song and the video. Uh, the musicianship is on point. It's not your typical rock song at all. It's got that really weird Dennis Davies drum beat that he had to practice. It's like kind of a weird dub drum drum beat. Um, it's got that crazy harmonic guitar thing going on. It's got that Robert Smith moment where it sounds like he's gargling underwater. It's got the bass line. It's got the underwater pianos that Trent Reznor told us all about. It's got beautiful vocals. It's got a, I, I don't know what else to say about it. It's the whole package, man. It's a great song. Mark, it was on your list too, right? It was my number eight. Um, and I think the reason I scored it a little bit lower, I mean, if you had asked me maybe to make this list five years ago, I probably would have ranked it um, a little higher, but for me, it was, it's, I hate to say overplayed because I, it's not to say that I would ever be sick of this song. Um, I mean, it, the production value on this song was way ahead of its time. It was really doing some really avant-garde things, but also keeping some pop sensibilities um, to the point that I made earlier about Scary Monsters, about be the culmination of his career with all these um, experimental techniques that he finally perfected. And I think what personified that particularly is Ashes to Ashes. As much as I love Teenage Wildlife and I did score that higher, um, I just... I think Ashes to Ashes is just a phenomenal song. Um, it has its roots in, you know, what really put Bowie on the map with Space Oddity. And it it is so influential in uh, that one song probably created multiple bands and especially probably kickstarted the New Wave era. Um, it's just, a, it's a great song. It's just, it does so much in one song. It's incredible. And it was kind of a hit, kind of. The video was early MTV. And whenever something even gets even, when something that weird gets its hooks in the public consciousness, that's always fun. And yeah, you're right. Like the, the connection to Major Tom is a ton of fun. Um, just, uh, just, yeah, it does. It did so much. And it's, it's a little, in one little song. And I just think if you're to pick one David Bowie song and say, I can only hear one David Bowie song for the rest of my life. Station to Station or that might be the two I would pick. Station to Station has more room to breathe. But this one, if you really listen, it packs so much sonically into its its time frame. It's uh, incredible. Yeah, I uh, so this might be the only episode we don't reference Pushing Ahead the Dame 7,000 times, but... Uh... <laughs> I will make one that my, one of my favorite quotes would be, you know, if you could lay out Bowie songs non-linearly, this would always be his last song that he made. Um, just because it kind of uh, bookends everything with, with uh, space oddity perfectly. It's almost too perfect. I'm almost mad at myself for picking this as number one because it's too perfect, but this is a, a really perfect song for me. Um, so back when I said that, uh, 
Scary Monsters was him fusing everything he learned from Glam to the Berlin trilogy. This song is a perfect example of that, right? So you have this bass line that could have come from Stay, could have come from any any of the more funky songs. Um, you have this drum beat that could be Assassin or something from Lodger. Um, you have this underwater piano that could be an Eno that's totally influenced by his his time with Eno. And then, uh, and then, and then lyrically, he gets self-reflective, and he could just do that. He could, he could. It, it's the first time he's been super reflective about himself, uh, and 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 the journey he's been on. Um, and he could just do that, but instead, he adds another layer and ties it back to Major Tom, as as you all said. Um, which I mean, you just couldn't tie it up in a nicer bow, really. Um, it's. Uh, and and it's wonderful. And the fact that it's one of his more well-known songs and, and well-respected songs, and it's so, like you said, Steve, fucking weird. It, that just warms me heart. I'll say it again. It's lovely. Uh, <laughs> it's lovely. I love I love I love I love this damn track. So there you go. Yeah, and then uh, shout out again to pushing at the dame. Um, uh, we're gonna learn where season three will take us, and if we can ever get that guy to uh, do an interview podcast episode with us we would definitely would like to go back and talk to david bowie about him because his website was a wealth of information and uh we tip our hats again uh, i like that you said talk to david bowie about the writer of pushing ahead the dame that's exactly what i meant because <laughs> that is some like that's pretty meta i love it well that's you know that's there you did uh, uh like my commentary sits outside of time much like the song ashes to ashes true it's very all right my number one now yes i did not pick heroes and i did that because i knew that mark would probably pick it and he did uh i don't know his list but he hasn't mentioned it yet and we haven't talked about it um uh and i just wanted there's so many good david bowie songs that i knew I, i cheated i did guys heroes would be in my top five but it's not because I, I knew that you guys would pick it and we'd still get to talk about it. It's a great song. Mark, I didn't try to steal your thunder there, but I think we were, we figured out where you were going. Um, my number one, it's also pretty obvious to anyone who's listening to the podcast. Mark will be like, Oh yeah, of course. And also it's very on brand for me. <laughs> I kind of did this with nine Nails, where I said, yeah, terrible lies, a good song, but if you heard the live version, Daydream, the live version, is my favorite David Bowie song of all time. This would specifically be the live version off of the David Bowie uh, Ziggy Stardust the motion picture soundtrack. I do love the version off of Ziggy Stardust. I would probably rank that as my number three, but I'm not going to list the same song twice in a top ten. Uh, I feel that Moon Age Daydream... Let's let's talk about the studio version for a second. Ziggy Stardust is an album that changed rock and roll quite a bit. And yes, we talk about our five years. We talk about our title tracks of Ziggy Stardust. I really feel like Moon Age Daydream sums that album up better than anything. 
and really shows everything David Bowie and Mick Ronson had to offer. And um, the, the studio version of that song is impeccably produced. His vocals are great. The guitar solo on that is great. The drums sound good. It sounds otherworldly. It, it definitely transports you. And David Bowie showed you quite a few times leading up to Ziggy Stardust, but definitely on Ziggy Stardust. I can take you to other worlds. Moon Age Daydream has always done that for me. But it truly does that for me on the live version. Um, I remember watching that that DVD. And just I heard the live version on this on the CD for like two years before that. I get this DVD of it. It's not that good of a transfer, but the presentation, uh, the the way that Mick Ronson and David Bowie were stalking the stage together as they go into that guitar solo, and the way that Mick Ronson takes center stage of that guitar solo transported me in a way that I can remember to this day. Like I feel like I was levitating in that room, and I've said that before. Like I really feel like I was levitating. It was almost like an alien abduction. I, I just, the guitar solo was doing all this shit. I couldn't believe it. And time stopped. And Mick Ronson just took control. And when I thought he was done, he was not. And then he would send sounds out into the audience. And he would reach out and grab them and pull them back. And I'm a sucker for a good guitar solo. It was unlike any guitar solo I've ever seen. It was sandwiched in this perfect rock pop song. I, I, I don't know what else to say besides the fact that it was like damn near a life-changing moment for me. And I, as much as I say I cheated by not having heroes in my top ten list, I would be really cheating myself if I didn't put the live version of Moon Age Daydream near the top. And it sits at the top right now, and I'll tell you why. A few days ago, I was driving around for work, and uh, got a kid right now that just is born. He's like a month old uh, tomorrow. And uh, also, I'm trying to get my kids to be in pre-kindergarten, so I got to teach him a little bit. Uh, since I've been back to work, since having the newborn, work is kicking my ass. And also, there's the element of danger whenever I got to go into the field. I had to wake up early and drive down to uh, Fresno or somewhere Tuesday. And the sun was rising, and the Moon Age Daydream came on. And that guitar solo was playing. And the guitar solo uh, literally made me cry. The guitar solo, like a few days ago, this guitar solo that I've always loved, once again, got its hooks in me so much in an emotional moment and made me well with tears while the sun rose. And that tells you that a song has your number. And that's why its number is one. Moon Age Daydream. It was a great song. I remember you having such a uh, emotional reaction and essentially thinking that you have uh, discovered fire when you wanted to show it to me. And it is an amazing song. I knew that was going to be your, somewhere on this list. And as we were chiseling away at our top tens, I was just waiting for it. Um, I do have to call you out on not putting heroes on your list because, you know, if Great song's a great song, and I'm I not going to no, segue. Shame but, on me. Uh, I did, Mark, I did it just so we could have more songs to talk about. I mean, can you blame me? <laughs> I, no, that's fine. I, it, but the thing is, I know why you picked Moon Age Daydream, because where you were at in your, in your life at that point, and um, you know, as we were growing up as uh, teenagers together, and you know, it, it, it was such a touchstone 
and I could see uh, it having such a lasting impact on you, especially that live uh, recording, only that live recording. Um, I just felt that the emotional intensity of Mick Ronson's guitar playing was very cathartic for you uh, in some way or another. And so I, I can see it from a long, long age and uh, I respect it. It's yeah, a lot, it's a- that is fun when you can pick just a particular moment that really strikes you. We don't get that opportunity often. I feel, um, I think nine snails has given us a lot of those and that's why we did our first season on them. There's like a good handful of times Trent Reznor gave us musical moments that we'll remember forever. We're they like, we're precise. And, um, yeah, Mick Ronson has that honor with me. And so does slash 10 times over, but yes. <laughs> yeah. I think it's cool. Uh, you know, we all got into, or at least we're open-minded to Bowie because of nine inch nails, but Steve, you, you have that moment that ties you into basically like classic rock through Bowie, which, I didn't appreciate until much later. I can't speak for Mark, but um, that's kind of cool that you had that at that time. Because for me, I was just appreciating 90s Bowie. But you actually, uh, you know, had a moment with his his old stuff that uh, definitely got its got its hooks in. Yeah, and I, we, give, we give as much as that to Trent Reznor as what you got into it. I got to say that, you know, we he's a kind of a clown these days. He, he comes and goes. But Marilyn Manson had as much to do with that, uh, the rock version of David Bowie as anyone for me as a teenager. Um, they're dabbling in glam and and in different personalities and storytelling definitely uh, steered me towards that. So, yeah, it was fun. Good time, those late 90s. Well, Mark, yeah, I, hate, I, I, I hate to have taken any thunder from you. No, but, um, not at all. Yeah, it's such a it's such a meaty song. That there's plenty to say about it. What, what is your number one? Well, I actually did think that we were going to go two for two each season. We uh, we somehow landed on our number ones being simultaneous, uh, but uh, apparently swing and a miss. One for two ain't uh, ain't bad. Still batting five hundred. Yeah, uh, who even knows? Is, who even knows what season three's top ten closeout is going to be like? I don't even know. We're gonna. That's going to be like. <laughs> <laughs> set aside to, set aside some time folks you'll learn why in a moment <laughs> we're gonna learn how to count cards on that one um okay so bleak strategies <laughs> <laughs> um my number one is of course hero quintessential Bowie song it has um, it hits me emotionally it is the song that I walk down the aisle to marry my wife um, with in a more of a instrumental version of course and kind of a classical rendition of it but um, that line of um, I mean it's it's quite a love song I'll tell you that um, it's you know uh, 
and it's it's an imperfect love song, and that's what I love about it so much. Um, and Bowie's just singing his guts out at the end. Uh, it it always tends to choke me up every single time I hear this song. It it is just one of those just all timers, and it is my number one David Bowie song. And uh, that's all I'll say about it. It's so good. Yeah, it made my top five, and uh, you know I. I'm not trying to be contrary, and I definitely try to look in the nooks and crannies for my top 10, um, but there's no denying it. It's one of his biggest songs ever um, because on the surface level, it can just be looked as being a, you know, super inspiring song. Um, if you actually, like you said, it's an imperfect love song. Um, it's actually much more realistic in that, you know, even if the love is doomed, that one moment where you feel it, that's kind of all you need, you know, against great, great odds and challenges. And really, that's more inspiring than some, you know, schlocky, you know, uh, feel good song. Uh, really, that at least to me. Um, and the fact that it's like wall of sound guitar um, and all sorts of layers of, uh, of synth and bass behind it, um, it is... Uh, it sounds great uh, on paper. It should be more challenging than it is, but it just it just works, and um, it's ahead of its time uh, as far as that sound. And um, yeah, it's it's undeniable. It's fantastic. It is undeniable, even though I denied it and I cheated. It, if I if I was not trying to just give us more opportunities to talk about songs we've already talked about. Um, it would definitely be my top five. It would probably be number one or two. Uh, you can't you can't mess with it. It's Heroes. It's a song that's been covered by so many people for obvious reasons. And we discussed in the episode about it. They usually miss the mark, but it 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 soars to a level that few songs are able to. And um, it has yeah. There's a there's a little bit of sarcasm to it, but also some romanticism, which I think is perfect for Mark getting married to it because that sums him up to a T and his wife to an extent. Um, she doesn't uh, suffer any fools either. And um, yeah, no, I just did. Uh, Heroes is a great song. And everything I said about Teenage Wildlife, you could apply it to Heroes. Uh, the, the Robert Fripp guitar work, David Bowie's vocalizations. Um, it's all there. It's uh, It's also a song that could... I think a lot of the low trilogy is awesome because it could have came out six years ago and still sound like it came out six years ago, even though it came out decades ago. I think heroes has a very timeless sound to it. Uh, it's a, a it's an awesome song. I it's what, what else can you say? Like I struggled to find good things to say about it because it's so good. Well, we've done it. I think we've uh, all talked about our number ones. And it's only time to put a, a button into this season two season of the space podity. Can you believe we've done it? We did it way quicker than the last, the Nine Inch Nails one. And I, I know a lot of that's because we, we, we talked about this. We did this one all from remotely for the most part, but we talked about a lot of music, you know? Holy shit. We did. Yeah. Uh, one thing I'd like to say is that thank you listeners for joining us. Um, I feel that we, there's a lot of, uh, 
oh, let's let's dissect an album song by song podcast now. They're they're everywhere. Have you guys noticed? Have you got? Let me let me, let me put on my best Jay Leno. Hey, have you guys seen this? There's a lot of uh, podcasts out there doing uh, albums track by track. Top notch, Steve. That was a great Leno. I mean, I felt like I was on the show. I mean, I, I don't know if uh, Eric was going to do his Kevin Eubank. <laughs> I felt like we were in the in your in your hot rod driving down the street talking about it. Yeah, it's yeah, good. but no, definitely. There, there's a lot of them out there, and we appreciate the people that have uh, come to us and stuck with us. Um, we have a a small fan base that interacts with us. I'm not going to name them because I don't want to forget anyone, but we do appreciate you, and you know who you are. The people that that comment and uh, send us messages uh, knowing that there's people out there that appreciate what we're doing on any level. Like we said, we would do this even if we had nothing better to do, we'd be doing this, but knowing that some people can get any kind of joy out of the three of us talking, it makes me immensely happy because we are very mediocre, white, boring men. And I don't know what your malfunction is, but I am thankful you're on the same level we are. So to our listenership, Thank you. Yeah. A lot of sweethearts out there. A lot of sweethearts. All right. So for season three, are we going to do a Spiders from Mars announcement and say that uh, we're breaking up or are we continuing on? I thought about breaking us up. Um, I mean, I thought about kicking Eric out. Uh, and sure. I, I did for a while, but we're going to give him he's, he's, uh He's month to month, as they say. Um, uh, you really got to clear that intern credential and, and you got to, you got to, yeah, you got to. Everything I think, every time I think you've made it, you say just one thing and I'm like, oh, nope, tearing up that contract. Um, but yes, let's, you know what, let's, let's leave it up to chance again. Eric, could you please roll the dice? Okay. I don't know uh, precisely what you're looking for here, but. Um, or pretend you're rolling a dice. I know I rolled something. It's a, it's a, uh, it's a beautiful 14. You, you rolled, rolled a 14. Yeah. Hold uh, on. Uh, hold on. Uh, you rolled a 14. Okay. Hold on. can't be right no behemoth that would be if only i made a podcast all right roll it again eric that can't be right ah oh, i'd say uh it's a that's a it's a sweet six buddy a six now hold on the doors well that's Getting a little closer to something we all like here, but I, I don't know. That strictly seems like Mark music to me. Roll it again. The salt parade has now begun. Listen to the engines hum. People out to have some fun. Cobra on my left, leopard on my right. Uh, you gotta tell me what an 18 is, man. 
An 18. Okay. Uh, the Clash. Well, again, that's closer to what we like. One more, that's that's Eric music I've ever heard of in my time of this life. (laughs) Roll it one more time. One more time. Maybe we'll finally make some sense of this. Sure. Uh, What you got to tell me what a, what a, what a solid 20 is. Take a look around. Prince. All right. Well, we've all said we like Prince. So hold on a second here. Let me take a look at this uh, time travel device. Oh, yeah. This thing's all fucked up, guys. It's going all over the place. Um, well, dear listeners, I hate to tell you this. Season three, I don't think we're doing any one artist. Uh, it looks like we're going all over. That is correct. We are not going to go through any individual artist. We have picked, each of us have picked 14 albums uh, by artists that you probably all like, uh, music that you all probably are going to be fans of if you haven't already become fans of them. And we are going to do a random order um, episode uh, like we did this season, but instead of focusing on one artist, we're going to go through such artists as the aforementioned Doors, Clash, uh, Prince, Behemoth, and uh, Primus, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. Um, and we'll be posting that final list um, to our Facebook page as we go into phase three of Pod Like a Whole. Yeah, what we'll do is a. Uh... Yeah, I mean, like, I if you if you've been listening, we talked about it. It's overwhelming to try to do a season of another artist again, of just one artist. We did, we really got close to doing Nick Cave, but it just it's too much, and uh, we had many 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 discussions in the writer writers room about how to make it fair, keep the variety there, and so we each picked fourteen albums, whittled it down, and we'll randomize those. Uh, we'll release the list of the artists because everybody's kind of going to want to know what they're getting into, but not the particular albums. We do know what albums they are, but you're not going to know them until you hear about them. Um, that's going to run the gamut. You're going to have, you're going to have your rock standards. You're going to have some hip hop on there. You're going to have some alternative indie rock. You're going to have some metal. You're going to have, uh, some Eric music. Um, Indu- I mean, a little I, industrial, little, little, I mean, like class. if I, yeah, I mean, if I were to just skip around here in this list, you've got arcade fire, black car perception, uh, procession, 
uh, Botch, Fad Gadget, Faith No More, Fugazi, Ice Cube, LCD Sound System, Mastodon, Radiohead, Rammstein, Susie and the Banshees, The Cure, and a few other things in between. So we'll put that list out there. Uh, we're really looking forward to it. I wanted to keep doing this, but right now, with everything going on, the idea of saying I'm going to sit down and listen to every artist X album in a row just wasn't doing it for me. And I feel like my cohorts here felt similar. Well, uh, I, I think it's it, like, look at it this way for season one and season two were super uh, decompressed for an artist. We, we spread it out. We let him breathe. And it did take up two years each season, you know, almost. Right. So now we, I think we got pretty good at this. And so we're taking a more compressed approach and we're going to pick our not necessarily favorite, but the, the most interesting to talk about album from these artists. But then we're also going to provide you with a little, uh, you know, basically uh, your, your more like recommended standards uh, as far as their other stuff that, that, that will give you some background. And then your, your homework, your optional homework as far as related projects. We're going to try to give you the whole experience in one episode and do yeah, that we're gonna- throughout the whole list. As much as we we begrudgingly, uh, or maybe on your part, listener, we uh, <laughs> boastfully and pridefully, we stuck to the whole like year of uh, thing. We're we'll be done with that. We're gonna we're gonna jettison that because we've gone over many years. No more pop culture. Uh, uh, I'm clearly lessons. a terrible history teacher, also. Yeah, by the way. <laughs> but that's gonna leave us time to in each of these episodes do an album track by track do a bit of a history lesson on that artist in a discussion and also do like Eric just said, a, a uh, standards and also a uh, further listening. And since we divided it evenly, the host that picked that artist will have a lot of fun being the orchestrator of each of those episodes. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, we hope you stick with us through that. It's going to be a little different, but there's no doubt we're going to touch on something you like. Yeah, and we'll we'll put the list out of the artists pretty soon here. Mark, do you think it would be okay if you announce who, what the first episode is? So what we've decided to do, um, we have decided to start with Pink Floyd's The Wall. Um, that was my pick after some careful discussions. of I mean, We could pick anything by Pink Floyd, of course. Um, but the wall is such a uh, touchstone. It's uh, it's a relevant album for today's day and age. Um, it's a uh, it's it's going to be a great discussion because it's red meat for Eric is because it is a concept record, and he's not a huge Pink Floyd guy. So it'll be interesting to get a fresh perspective as me and Steve are longtime Floyd heads, if that's the term. Yeah, so. and I think also, you know, uh, I don't want to take David Bowie listeners and throw them right into the world of uh frontline assembly but i think pink floyd will be a good stabilizer as we're coming up from the depths of david bowie we'll 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 hang out at the uh right below the surface level there in pink floyd land before we definitely dive into the randomizer that is a season three so i'm looking forward to talking about the wall i've been listening for whatever reason uh right before the newborn was born I sat in the corner of my house, put the wall on and listened to it end to end. And I can't remember the last time I did that for an album at all. And, uh, with no, no interruptions. 
it was wonderful. It's a, it's a great record and I can't wait to talk to you guys about it, but thank you for joining us for season two. Um, and we will be back for season three in a couple weeks. Um, and, uh, yeah, stay tuned. Other than that, as always, this has been Mark, Eric, and this is Steven. And we hope that we brought you closer to pod. It wasn't for, it was never for me. I mean, I, I wouldn't have cared when he was younger. I mean, he's his own man now, obviously, as he is your age. Um, but there was a point where I, I worried for him, you know, uh, uh, that there was a, a point where he got a mohawk, you know, and it was, it wasn't so much me that I, I mean, I'd go around with him, whatever he looked like, you know, it was just that I know what gets thrown at you when you look different. You know, and I just, maybe it was protected. But we never, we never had a, we never ever, I mean, I, I frankly, I just ended up keeping my mouth shut, you know, and I just thought, oh, look, he's going to go through it. He's going to have to go through it. You know, he'll decide. But so, <laughs> so he's always done what he, he's always been what he wants to be. It's true. They got a